0: So when exactly does the um, issue of OSHA's ability to declare rules during this emergency period end? That is a question that was raised at a Supreme Court hearing. And during that hearing, during that process, Justice Amy Cohen Barrett raised questions with the Solicitor General, who's basically the lawyer of the government or the administration of the United States. The Solicitor General is the one who argues cases before the Supreme Court and discusses opinions. In this case, OSHA's ability to declare openly whether or not it had the right to mandate certain actions on a federal level across the United States for all workers on masks and other uh, requirements. Now, what does this mean? Well, let's give it a listen and listen directly. It's easy to talk about things, but I prefer to listen directly when the information is there and the voices are there. So let's listen to Justice Anne Cohn Barrett and of course the Solicitor General of the United States.
1: Two questions, both of which address the status of this rule as an emergency temporary standard. So my first question has to do with the question with which Justice Thomas opened, which is the meaning of necessary. So of course, when OSHA passes a rule through its regular regulatory process, um, it has to go through notice and comment, and that's a way of holding an agency accountable. All affected people have an opportunity to comment, and the agency develops a, a robust record. With an ETS, of course, the agency can circumvent that process so that it can act more quickly. So for an ETS, we would want that power to be the exception, not the rule. And one contrast that the applicants point out between OSHA's authority to issue an ETS versus a regular regulation, is that for its exercise of power in the normal course, it need only find that a regulation be reasonably necessary, but for an ETS, it has to satisfy a necessary standard. Now, you've argued, and I think there's a lot of intuitive appeal to this, that when you're facing an emergency of the magnitude of this pandemic, that this power effectively can be used most effectively as a blunt instrument. You know, we don't have time to make industry-by-industry specific kind of calculations because we want to move with speed. But how do you reconcile that understanding of necessary with the broader, reasonably necessary standard in OSHA's normal regulatory authority. So we certainly
2: agree that the emergency temporary standards reference to necessary as contrasted with reasonably necessary and appropriate is a is a heightened burden and includes a measure of tailoring that's necessary with respect to the particular mitigation measures. But I don't think that that helps the applicants here because they haven't come forward with any alternative mitigation measures that they think would equally protect the workers that OSHA found were in great danger. But grave do they danger. have to
1: come forward with that evidence or did OSHA have to consider it and reject it? Because another part of their contention is that OSHA did not ad- adequately explain why this measure, this particular role and its scope was necessary vis-à-vis or as compared to other possibilities.
2: Well, OSHA explained that at length over dozens of pages in the 150-page preamble to the rule. OSHA specifically explained why vaccination as the single most effective way to target all of the ways that the virus threatens workers in the workplace was a necessary measure here. And it further explained why masking and testing would be essential if workers remain unvaccinated in order to ensure that despite their higher risk level of contracting the virus, they couldn't carry it into the workplace and spread it to their coworkers. So I think the suggestion that this wasn't adequately explained is inconsistent with the, the arguments they're making. And as I understand their tailoring arguments, and this actually touches on the question you asked earlier in the argument, they're really focused on two things, the categories of workers and the, the particular workplaces. And they haven't suggested that there are other mitigation measures there that OSHA neglected to consider. They're saying those things should have just been carved out altogether. But that is inconsistent with the Secretary's judgment that all unvaccinated workers face a grave danger and that the risk exists anywhere that employees are gathered gathered. gathered indoors together. And again, there might be subcategories within those groups that are in graver danger, but I don't think there is any basis on this record to conclude that the agency lacked substantial evidence to draw the lines that it did.
1: That's helpful. Thank you. My, My second question is, again, about the status of this rule as an ETS. So Chief Judge Sutton pointed out in his dissent from the denial of initial en banc that OSHA did not adopt this rule in response to the emergency, quite emergency, because that had been ongoing since early 2020. But instead, it responded to new facts on the ground, which included the widespread availability of a vaccine that maybe it was a surprise many people chose to forego, and the emergence of the Delta variant. And Chief Judge Sutton pointed out that in an extended pandemic, or I don't know if we've moved to an endemic, such as this one, facts will continually change. New variants will emerge. There might be new treatments, new vaccinations. We we have boosters now, right? So now full vaccination might not just be the two jobs, it might include a booster as well. So when does the emergency end? I mean, a lot of this argument has been about Congress's failure to act two years from now, do we have any reason to think that COVID will be gone or that new variants might not be emerging? And when when must OSHA actually resort to its regular authority and go through notice and comment and not simply be kind of doing it um, in this quick way, which doesn't afford people the voice in the process that they're otherwise entitled to?
2: So I think if I could respond to that in a few different ways, Congress defined when the emergency exists. It, it labeled this an emergency temporary standard, but it's dictated by the statutory requirements. So there has to be a grave danger from a physically harmful agent or a new hazard, and the the measures have to be necessary to protect against that danger. And we don't think that there's an additional free-floating requirement um, about uh, emergency
1: status that has to be taken into account. So it could be an emergency two more years from now?
2: Well, I certainly take the point that the emergency can be of substantial duration. Of course, this is not a way to to bypass notice and comment permanently. Congress further specified that the agency is expected to conduct a rulemaking process over six months, and and that's why the agency estimated uh, the the lives saved, the hospitalizations prevented over the six-month life of the rule.
1: Sure, but I was envisioning a new rule, right? Like you know, OSHA might two years from now adopt something that's different from this vaccine or mask and test mandate. I'm just talking about the limits more generally on OSHA's power under the ETS provision.
2: The limits, I think, are the ones written into the statute, and so if you want to project out two years from now, I think it's entirely possible, of course, that the trajectory of the pandemic will change. I certainly hope so, and in that case, OSHA, I think, would have to, if it wanted to regulate again cross the the high burden of showing a grave danger. You know, this is an authority it has used sparingly in cases of of what we think are true emergencies. And I think to suggest based on concern about what might happen in the future, that its authority should be constrained or clipped now when we are in the middle of an unprecedented pandemic that is claiming more lives than we've seen in a shorter amount of time would do a disservice to Congress's anticipation that OSHA might need to act quickly in response to dangers like this. Thank you.
3: Mr. Keller, rebuttal. Two points, Mr. Chief Justice. First, we need to stay now before enforcement starts. Our members have to submit publicly their plans to how to comply with this regulatory behemoth on Monday. Vaccines would need to occur by February 9th you would need two vaccines to comply. Those vaccines would have to start immediately. Tracking and record keeping cannot happen overnight. And on tests, you heard my friend, the Solicitor General, mention the media reports that we've all seen about shortages of tests and cost increasing. Our declarations, appendix page 345 and 374, confirm that as well. Then that's exactly why workers will quit right away. You don't even have to take our word for it. The federal government, the Postal Service and Amtrak both say the same things. What OSHA did is they cherry-picked one study about healthcare workers, a very specific industry, and what that worker attrition rate would be. Again, two declaration sites, we have plenty more, but appendix pages 351 and 374. My second point to close on is about who decides in the public interest, and I would submit that this court's precedents answer that. We're not asking this court To reverse anything. Industrial Union 40 years ago in Justice Stevens's controlling opinion said that there was an absence of a clear mandate in the OSHA Act, so it's unreasonable to assume that Congress gave OSHA unprecedented power over American industry and the emergency power is also narrowly circumscribed. Yet here, OSHA has never before done mandated vaccines or widespread testing, much less over all industries or on an emergency basis. So whether we're talking about the agency's failure to explain, whether we're talking about the statutory term necessary, whether we're talking about how this has to be tethered to the workplace under the major questions doctrine, under any one of those theories, we are likely to succeed on the merits. And finally, when it comes to the public interest, as this court just recognized a few months ago, it is undisputable that the public has a strong interest in combating the spread of the COVID-19 Delta variant, but our system does not permit agencies to act unlawfully, even in pursuit of desirable ends. We would respectfully request a stay of this unprecedented sweeping ETS before Monday. Thank you, Council. The applications are submitted.
0: New York Senator Chuck Schumer, the majority leader in the Senate, wants to end debate and discussion when it comes to the Senate and how its uh, ability to allow the minority or any minority to speak to come forward. This is something that he opposed himself, and it's shown very plainly by Senator Cotton here in this response. You see, the Democrats want to pass bills, legislation that primarily talks about election integrity, yet at the same time, they have no integrity themselves and are showing a huge amount of hypocrisy. It's kind of ironic after listening to debates at the uh, and discussions at the United States Supreme Court, how different things are in the Senate when politics are involved. Yes, there's politics in the Supreme Court as well, obviously on issues, but those politics are generally kept set aside by and large However, at the Senate, it is all politics at this point. And Chuck Schumer being denied so strongly their opportunity to rewrite the election code that would allow basically anybody they wanted to vote or any kind of ballot to be used and read to be passed. He scoffs at the ability of these things to happen. And yet he doesn't think that even if his side were the one to push these through at some point, Another player or party could manipulate the same things and use these tactics against them. Integrity for elections is very important. Integrity in the Senate is extremely important. Integrity in New York Senator, it is not to be found. What is found instead is hypocrisy, as shown by Tim Cotton and Chuck Schumer's own words that condemn his actions. Listen and learn, it's the best way to understand.
1: The senator from Arkansas.
0: Right now, we are on the
4: precipice of a constitutional crisis. We're about to step into the abyss. I want to talk for a few minutes why we're on that precipice and why we're looking into that abyss. Let me first ask a fundamental question. What is the crisis that calls for the undoing of two centuries of tradition? Are senators merely doing their jobs as legislators, responding to a generalized public calling for the abolition of the filibuster? Clearly not. It is not the American people at large who are demanding detonation of the nuclear option. The nuclear option is being pushed largely by the radioactive rhetoric of a small band of radicals who hold in their hands the political fortunes of the president. Constitutional scholars will tell us that the reason we have these rules in the Senate, unlimited debate, two-thirds to change the rules, the idea that 60 have to close off debate, is embodied in the spirit and rule of the Constitution. That is what the Constitution is all about, and we all know it. It is the Senate where the Founding Fathers established a repository of checks and balances. It's not like the House of Representatives, where the majority leader or the Speaker can snap his fingers and get what he wants on important issues the Founding Fathers wanted. And they were correct in my judgment that the slimmest majority should not always govern. The Senate is not a majoritarian body. The bottom line is very simple. The ideologues in the Senate want to turn the founding fathers, what the founding fathers called the cooling saucer of democracy, into a rubber stamp of dictatorship. They will make this country into a banana republic, where if you don't get your way, you change the rules. Are we going to let them? It will be a doomsday for democracy if we do. I, for one, hope and pray that it will not come to this. But I assure my colleagues, at least speaking for this senator, I will do everything I can to prevent the nuclear option from being invoked not for the sake of myself or my party, but for the sake of this great republic and its traditions." Those are powerful words, but they're not mine. Every word of my speech today was originally spoken by our esteemed colleague, the senior senator from New York. Chuck Schumer. Senator Schumer spoke so eloquently in defense of the Senate's rules, customs, and traditions when the fortunes of his party looked a little different. My, how times have changed. Now it's Senator Schumer's fingers that are hovering over the nuclear button, ready to destroy the Senate for partisan advantage. Think about it. The narrowest majority in Senate history wants to break the Senate rules to control how voters in every state elect senators. Could there be a better argument to preserve the Senate's rules, customs, and traditions? So before it's too late, let us reflect on the wise and eloquent words of Senator Schumer Words that are as true today as they were when he spoke them. Even if Senator Schumer is singing a different tune today.
0: One basic reason that people criticize the way Nancy Pelosi and the Democrats run the House of Representatives is the extent that they will go to retain even one seat in a vote For power. When a congressman in Iowa won her election by a mere six votes, or recounts done, it was recertified and everything, still showed up to be the same. Six votes. Nancy Pelosi went out and spent $100,000 per vote basically to have those votes cast aside and the will of the people, the will of the majority, thrown aside in Iowa, in favor of a candidate who lost, a candidate who opposed her actions. But Pelosi tried just the same. She lost that effort, and the Congresswoman, in this case, in Iowa, was seated. It is something, of course, Pelosi can never live down. A Speaker of the House spending public money, hundreds of thousands of dollars, in a time of crisis and COVID, to create a political move that would have just gained them one seat they were already in the majority she is the speaker after all but as it is explained it is even more clearly to see how much there is not just a lack of election integrity process among democrats in the house of representatives but there is also a problem when it comes to the discussion of even the use of funds in times of crisis in order to achieve political ends when people can't even afford to buy gasoline, pay rent, and do almost basic tasks all for personal gain. Let's listen and learn.
5: Maybe you heard this about a year ago or so. Big attempt to steal an election. Just last year, We had Washington insiders colluding to overturn the will of the people in a fair and free election. Yes, you heard it right, an attempt to steal an election. But it's probably not the election that you are thinking about. Speaker of the House of Representatives Nancy Pelosi attempted to steal a seat in the House. Iowa's 2nd District Congresswoman won her election in 2020 and was certified by Iowa's Secretary of State, 24 county auditors of both parties, and the bipartisan State Board of Canvas. And she is here with me today. Representative Marionette Miller-Meeks. Thank you for being here today, Representative. In a blatant political power grab, the Speaker of the House spent over $600,000 of taxpayer money in an attempt to unseat the duly elected Congresswoman Miller Meeks. Even some reasonable members of the Democratic Party sounded the alarm bell on this brazen attempt to reverse the election results. Representative Dean Phillips said at the time, quote, Losing a House election by six—yes, by six—votes is painful for Democrats, but overturning it in the House would be even more painful for America. Voters in Iowa and across America should choose their representatives without interference from politicians in Washington. guaranteeing both the right to vote as well as the integrity of our election system ensures fair and free elections, which are the foundation of our republic. The attempt to overturn the Iowa election results was the opening salvo in the left's ongoing rush to take over elections. Democrats' proposals are seeking to limit voter ID, legalize ballot harvesting, provide taxpayer money to campaigns, and weaponize the Federal Election Commission. Using fake hysteria, they are trying to blow up the Senate and fundamentally change our country. However, their very effort is unpopular, unnecessary and unacceptable. Mr. President, I served as a local county auditor and commissioner of elections. My home state has seen various common sense election reforms throughout the years. In fact, in 2017, the Iowa legislature modernized our laws, which also included requiring voter ID. At the time of its passage, Democrats warned the law was dangerous and an unnecessary hurdle and a significant barrier for anyone who is not a white male. They could not have been further From the truth. Three times since the new Iowa voter law was implemented, the state has seen record high turnout for elections. Record high turnout. Huge voter participation. This includes record high absentee voting during the 2020 presidential election. The 2021 elections also boasted record off-year turnout. Record off-year turnout. My friends on the other side of the aisle will have you believe that voters are being suppressed in red states all over this country. The irony here is that New York, home of the Democratic leader, and Delaware, home of President Biden, have some of the most restrictive voting laws in the entire country. And Iowa, because it has modernized our elections in the course of the number of past years, has been demonized by Democrats, when, oddly enough, Iowa's election laws are much more progressive than Delaware and New York. Just this past November, New Yorkers overwhelmingly voted down a ballot initiative to allow no-excuse absentee voting. New York voters also rejected a proposition that would have allowed individuals to register to vote and cast a ballot on Election Day. By the way, Iowa had Same-day voter registration. Thank you. Now the senior senator from New York is threatening to destroy the Senate, to override the wishes of the residents of his very own state, who voted against the policies he is trying to impose on every other state. Does that sound like democracy to you? It's not. While the media will have you believe that Senate Republicans are blocking the Democratic leader's agenda, it's really the voters of his own state. Liberal states have some of the most restrictive election laws in the country. And don't take my word for it. An expose recently published in The Atlantic found some states that the Democrats' control in the Northeast make casting a ballot more difficult than anywhere else, and that the voting bill being pushed in Congress would hit some blue states just as hard, if not harder. Now, that's the Atlantic. Then the red states, they claim, are limiting the right to vote. And I'll remind you, Iowa is much more progressive than these states. Plain and simple, Washington Democrats are gaslighting The American people. There is not a voting crisis in this country. It is manufactured. Their push to blow up the Senate and take over elections isn't about voter access, it's about power. The same power that liberal elites in Washington abused in their rush to steal Iowa's second congressional district now held by Congresswoman Miller Meeks, and silence Iowans' voices. Mr. President, what happened in Iowa, what was attempted in Iowa, should never be allowed to happen anywhere ever again. I yield the floor.
0: direct voices direct sources this is often the best way to understand exactly what is said it is one advantage broadcast has over print or other written forms of summary because there is little left to the imagination when you hear the people themselves speaking i'm mike of york we'll try to do more of this as we move on and look at different ways of understanding what exactly is being said in the news? Because it's often very easy to hear somebody go off on a tangent one way or another. And even and I have my biases. Yes, believe it or not, I do. But at the end of the day, it is best to listen to the source and try and find out what they are saying. That, of course, in the last piece we put out was uh, Senator Joni Ernst of Iowa and how she was discussing how Nancy Pelosi attempted to steal an election in the state of Iowa to benefit her party, even though they were already in the majority, and there was little need for it other than, well, pride, which is often, as we know, one of the most deadly sins. And that's all for me for now. As we leave you today, I'm going to try and do at least two or three podcasts today to make up for being uh, so unprolific over the past holiday season gotta blame it on football. I've been enjoying watching the Bills too much and uh, other teams. But uh, now I'm back to the core as winter sets in and snow piles up. That's all for me for now. I'm Mike of New York, Mike Cohen, and this has been Mike of New York Podcast. Have a pleasant and wonderful day. God bless you. And God bless America. (music)